Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206-451-4220. GreatNorthernElectric.com, serving our Bainbridge and Kitsap neighbors with solutions for anything electrical in your home. 206-842-3620. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance, we help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206-842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. Hey, what's cracking, Podcastville? Today on the Bystander Podcast, I have audio from Seattle Town Hall, an event that was done July 11th at the Reading Room with Anthony McCain, the author of Shadowlands. Enjoy. Shelf. All right. Check this out. Oh, yeah. That's really good. With a little handle. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, careful up there in the front row. I'll try to I'll get too excitable. Uh, there's a lot of excitability in this story. If you guys are familiar with it, you're familiar with that. Um, this book... Um, it is a nonfiction book about a, about a current event, but it is not maybe in the same vein as many such books. Um, as you just heard in the introduction, I come to this not as a traditional journalist, but as a... Okay. Yeah. As you already heard in the introduction, um, I come to this story not from a career as a traditional journalist, but as a creative writer and as a poet. Um, and that informs how the book, how the project was approached and how the book was written. So I'm going to be sharing um, a sequence of passages from the book with you tonight um, that follow a certain thread through the story to which um, various important content is attached. Uh, there are many strands and many threads through this story. Um, I'll just briefly explain how I came to be obsessed enough with this story to write this book. I live in the Mojave Desert. Um, 
And around the time I had finally moved full-time to the desert, um, I was writing what I thought was a very different kind of book, maybe a, more, a book more associated with uh, poetry poets and poetry, or I thought that's what I was doing. It turns out that's not what I was doing. I thought I was writing a book of kind of lyrical essays, interconnected essays about the desert, the experience of the desert, and the experience of time, and also the experience of history um, in a place like the desert where the experience of human time and society is dislocated, or um, different aspects of that experience are highlighted differently. And um, I was particularly interested in ideas about ideas of messianic time um, as associated with certain, around the time that this event happened, that research for that book had led me to a lot of reading about Native American messianic movements, particularly ones um, that had their place. Um, there are many, many, many Native American messianic movements across the whole history of the continent, but some of the most famous ones took place in the Columbia Plateau and in the Great Basin Desert. And uh, around the time that I was doing that research, suddenly a group of people uh, professing a very different messianic credo uh, occupied the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge uh, at the beginning of 2016. Um, in an event I assume you guys remember a little bit, but um, it got a lot of coverage. Uh, a lot of people were paying a lot of attention to it at the time. A lot of things have happened since then. Um, maybe you've forgotten some of the details, um, but what happened basically was... Um, a man named Ammon Bundy, uh, the son of a Nevada rancher named Cliven Bundy, who had been all over the news a couple of years earlier in 2014 over a standoff at uh, their ranch, uh, the Bundy family ranch in Nevada, in Clark County, Nevada, um, the same county as Las Vegas, over a long-standing dispute over the management of federal land. Um, new regulations on cattle grazing brought about by uh, a deal that the city of Las Vegas was able to make in order to keep growing um, after the desert tortoise was listed as an endangered species, brought new grazing restrictions to the place where the, the Bundy family grazed their cattle, um, and the Bundy family chose not to accept those and to no longer recognize the federal government um, through what many would regard as a creative interpretation of the Constitution. Um, which we'll get into later. Two years later, uh, another case involving a, a rancher, a ranching family in Harney County, Nevada, caught the attention of Ammon Bundy, Cliven Bundy's son, and inspired by the Holy Spirit, as you'll hear in just a second, he felt the need, or he felt compelled, almost against his will, he claimed, um, to intervene in this story. Um, and that led to uh, an armed occupation of the refuge and a whole other sequence of events that have been going on for a number of years since then, and which I've been following ever since uh, this story sucked me in, in January 2016. Um, so I'm going to begin at the beginning um, with Ammon, um, and give you a feel for, for uh, the instigator of the whole drama. Can everybody hear me? Is everything sound okay back there for you guys? Yeah? Louder? Uh, let's see, how's that? Is that any better? Okay. Yeah, we'll see here how we can do it. I can shout too. I can get really growly. Um, as the story goes on, maybe I will. I, don't have enough I got enough water, though. So. 
Um, we're going to begin right at the beginning. My dear friends. My dear friends, Ann and Bundy began and begins again and again every time someone hits play from 2016 all the way to the end of the internet. It was the first day of a year that was to scramble an already agitated nation. Along the invisible pathways of the collective mind, the virtual tabernacle of the World Wide Web, Ammon Bundy, cowboy prophet and Facebook hero of liberty, was calling his people to the desert. Soon his friends and what they called the Patriot Movement were all hitting play, activating his familiar face and sitting back in the glow of their screens as Ammon filled their hearts with urgent feeling. It was time, Ammon was saying, for what he called a hard stand. There had been some confusion about what he'd meant in previous communiques. He'd received some pushback, and he'd sat down now on the eve of calamity in front of the camera to try to clear things up. He's at his desk in a cowboy hat. He wouldn't appear in public much again without one until his arrest, weeks later on a mountain road in the snow and pines of Oregon's hard luck national forest. He's wearing a checkered western shirt and sporting what was for him a new, neatly trimmed growth of beard, further softening his visage. But even with a beard, Ammon Bundy couldn't help seeming what he was. A latter-day saint clean-cut to the core. The strongest word I or anyone I know has yet heard him use is creep, or hell. Before being summoned to the desert of Oregon by his god, that fall he'd been enjoying making apple pies for his Idaho neighbors, using apples from his new orchard, and delivering the pies himself. But the quiet idol of that autumn was already long over. This was to be his last video address to his online community before leading the very next day an armed takeover of Oregon's Maui National Wildlife Refuge. A MacBook Air laptop is open on his desk, its icon doing its quiet, intrepid work to place all our American lives and dreams, even those of right-wing holy insurrection, under its sign. Pale winter light comes through the blinds of the window behind him. In the video, which he titled Dear Friends, Ammon explains how it was God who had guided him to Oregon two months earlier through news of the plight of two Harney County ranchers, a father and son, Dwight and Stephen Hammond. Mandatory federal sentencing guidelines were about to send the Hammonds back to prison for arson charges stemming from fires on public land, charges for which they'd already served time. Others, including his own father, had been urging him to look into the story. Like the Hammonds, Ammon's father, Cliven, was also a rancher. The Bundy family had achieved a national profile for the dramatic culmination of their 20-odd-year struggle with federal authorities over their grazing rights on Mojave Desert lands in southern Nevada. That conflict had come to a head in April 2014 in a remarkable event, an armed standoff with federal agents that had resulted shockingly in a seeming victory for the Bundy clan. This standoff and the family's ongoing struggle with the aftermath of their life-changing actions had felt like enough to Ammon, who had recently moved far from southern Nevada to a new home with his wife and six children in the sagebrush of southern Idaho, at the far northern end of Mormon country on the outskirts of Boise. He himself was not even a rancher anymore, had not been for years. He ran a trucking fleet maintenance business still headquartered in Arizona. As it turned out, even that move to Idaho would come to seem to Ammon a part of God's larger plan for himself, his friends, Harney County, and America. There had been something a little strange about the move, even at the time. He and his wife Lisa had felt a strong, simultaneous urge to relocate. It had been a feeling that had descended as if from nowhere. They couldn't understand it entirely, but they'd followed it anyway and headed out in the spring of 2015, traveling around the Intermountain West looking at houses. Nobody had, nothing had been quite right. 
But then on the very last day of their trip, they come to this very last house in a beautiful valley in Emmett, Idaho, and had known instantly that this was the place. It was one of many decisions Ammon would be guided to that year. That guidance to Ammon's mind had all been providential. How else to explain that he'd ended up moving to within three hours of remote Harney County, Oregon, where the whole Hammond story, which he had known nothing about at that time, had taken place. And now here he was, just a few months later, barely settled into this new home, asking his online community to join him in Oregon to take a momentous stand, a stand so big, he said, that nothing less than the future of American freedom might be at stake. After the move to Idaho, his next big revelation had come late one Monday evening in November 2015. On January 1st, seated in front of his camera, he told the tale of that night to his online followers. Lying in bed in his family's new home, tired after a long day, he received a message on his phone, a link to yet another article about the Hammonds. In the past, he shrugged off messages about the case. I felt that our family was fighting hard enough, he explained. We didn't need to go fight someone else's battles. But this time, something was different. An urge quickly took possession of him a sudden impulse to learn all he could about this family. He searched the internet and read everything he could find about the case. Unable to sleep, he read on into the dawn. Come sunrise, his dark night of research was followed by a second urge, a desire he recognized as divinely inspired. This was an impulse to expression. I felt this urge again, this desire to begin to write. It wasn't easy at first, writing really is. My emotion about the Hammonds, Ammon continued, after I saw what was happening and found that what was happening to them was the same thing that happened to us, so my emotions were clouding my thoughts. But then inspiration came to him, as it often seems to come mysteriously and from somewhere outside. I got on my knees and I asked the Lord, and I said, Lord, if you want me to write something, then please help me clear my mind and show me what I should write. And so among the many other images to come, our story will start with this one. A bewildered and overtaken man, God ridden down on his knees, begging that unseen power to uncloud his mind so that he might write, so that he might simply sit down and begin. Ammon is devoutly religious, and his religion was also born in a mystical writing performance. The Book of Mormon's original golden tablets, allegedly discovered in a hillside in the famous burned-over district of western New York, were translated from an unknown ancient tongue with divine guidance and occult flair by the inspired founder and prophet of the Latter-day Saints. Poorly educated but endlessly enthusiastic and possessed of a remarkable imagination, young Joseph Smith had dedicated much of his adolescence and young adulthood to a local craze, treasure hunting, which seems to have consisted largely of robbing the mysterious Native American burial mounds so common in the area. Unaware in the beginning of the liturgical potential of his first literary work, Smith had initially hoped that his Book of Mormon would strike lucratively into the rich vein of the current media for theories linking the origins of Native Americans to the tales of the Old Testament. His immediate hope seems to have been that the book's success might save his parents' farm from foreclosure. The book wouldn't arrive in time to save the Smith family farm, but it came to do so much more, tapping into the current of powerful evangelical feelings then convulsing the American frontier. In doing so, it would utterly transform the life of its author and change the lives of millions and with them the history of the young American republic. America loves to make fun of its Mormons. So many of the Mormon cliches of Amon's video were already well-worn tropes of American populist, popular religious experience even in the time of the prophet. 
But to last enough then and now was to ignore how deftly these hackneyed but paradigmatic elements of religious experience had found themselves reshuffled and newly deployed in the hands of Smith, a singular font of rural American dynamism. Smith was a master communicator who intuited something vast about the volatility and openness of his times, what they asked for and what was possible in them. He called that ever-evolving, often cloudy, but occasionally crystal-clear understanding, God. While Allen's inspirations and intimations may not have matched the grandeur of Smith's, few did. His understandings of the whisperings and emotions that visited him and the way they condensed something about our time were very much in line with his prophets. The two men's interpretations of the divine guidance they felt differ really only when it, come to Ammon, when it comes to Ammon's emphasis on feeling. Smith described the sensation of revelation as a pure intelligence that would enter him. It may give you sudden strokes of ideas so that by noticing it you may find it fulfilled the same day or soon, those things that were presented onto your mind by the Spirit of God. To Ammon, on the other hand, this external intelligence seems to have presented itself first and at times primarily as intensity of emotion. Urge, obsession, sympathy, outrage, and need. The more he had become emotionally involved in the tribulations of this one ranching family from the remote high desert of Oregon, the more Ammon had come to see himself as a conduit, a vehicle for the expression of God's feelings, God's feelings about America. I began to understand how the Lord felt about the Hammonds, he told his internet friends on that first day of 2016. I began to understand how the Lord felt about Harney County and about this country. And I clearly understood that the Lord was not pleased with what was happening to the Hammonds, and that what was happening to them, if it was not corrected, would be a type and a shadow of what would happen to the rest of the people across this country. Mostly, it wasn't through writing that Ammon conveyed God's feelings directly into the lives of his followers. The intimacy of the Facebook or YouTube video is the true medium of the loose coterie of co-feeling that is the Bunty Revolution. In keeping with the formerly anarchic tendencies of social media, the Patriot community has many members, many leaders, and ever-shifting priorities and tones. But for those attached to the Bundy cause, its single most important focal point and greatest source of inspiration, inspirational feeling has remained Ammon himself. His life, his voice, his face. Especially his face. There's an earnestness and openness of expression and care to Ammon's face that is uncommon among men of the American right wing. Throughout all his intimate minor video addresses, Ammon's bearded countenance pours out a live stream of concern into the camera and the hearts of his viewers. His expression remains virtually unchanging, open, always open. From beginning to end in his dear friend's video, his eyes are wide. Sometimes when he blinks, you can see the deliberate micromuscular efforts to get his peepers fully opened again immediately. His blonde eyebrows are sloped upward and inward, pointing at the crown of his head hidden under his cowboy hat. This serves to push back his brow, thus enlarging his already fairly large and expressive mug, while his hands move in soft emphasis to the slow, clear cadences of his slight Nevada twang. All the while his head is held at a slight, sad puppy dog tilt. There is no lumbar-like apoplexy, no snide, Breitbart affect here. Anna is a different figure of masculinity, a right-wing version of the sensitive man. His public face is a pure stream of real-time concern that he has consistently poured forth in every interview, every press conference, every appearance on the witness stand, delivering his payload of sincerity each and every time. Few even among his worst enemies have ever doubted that Ammon Bundy mostly means what he says, but the full power of Ammon's direct address comes from his ability to make it clear again and again just how much he really means it. 
and maybe more, most importantly for the faithful, just how much through him his God really cares. The urges that had gripped Ammon and sent him to Googling and writing were far from finished with him. Once God had cleared his mind and the writing had come, it led only to the development of stronger understandings and urges, further revelations of God's desires, and an irresistible impulse to travel, to know the land of Oregon firsthand, to go to the place where all would be revealed. Once I got the letter read, written, he told his followers, I felt this desire, this urge to go to Burns and go to the Hammonds Ranch. Desires, urges, shadows, and types. Our story begins with huge feelings, historical feelings. Types and shadows are key figures in Mormon doctrine, where history is always revealed history, and human time is always unfolding toward its apotheosis. The dispensation of the fullness of times, as Joseph Smith liked to put it, quoting from Ephesians. Sometimes when I listen to Ammon telling the story of his first Oregon incursion, I see these doctrinal shadows and their precursors, the historical types that cast them as windswept clouds, dragging their blots of shade alongside him over the golden buttes as he drives on sealed in his holy bubble of urge. There he goes, tiny now, sneaking along the Mallory River, along the ill-fated route of more than one disastrous wagon train seeking away around the blue mountains of the Oregon Trail. I follow him as he goes on, crossing over the Drinkwater Pass and the Sneaking Water Mountains into the Harney Basin and the land called Malheur. Had Ammon noticed that this word, Malheur, so prevalent in this immense swath of East Oregon, meant misfortune in French? Would this sign have mattered? He was receiving so many. Yet another one arrived as he approached the town of Burns. Just as he was headed into the outskirts, he received more divine direction, again, as an overwhelming feeling. Suddenly, he knew he was supposed to change his route, not stop at the Hammond's house in town. Instead, he was to drive south over the great forehead of Wright's Point, the basalt butte that divides the town lands of Burns from the wide-open marshlands and sagebrush steppe at the heart of the Harney Basin. Cresting the point, he dropped now into that huge bowl of wind and distance to which he was about to bring so much human calamity. And calamity he brought um, over the next couple months in his efforts to uh, organize a resistance to the Hammond family being returned to prison. They had been convicted of arson charges, or actually in the middle of their trial, they had agreed to plead guilty to remaining charges, and they were supposed to be sentenced under mandatory sentencing guidelines, but the judge in the case decided that those, guide, those mandatory sentences were too excessive, and on the last day, uh, uh, his last day on the bench, he, on the day he retired, he handed out l lesser sentences, and the Hammonds were sent to prison, served the sentences, came back, but in that time, uh, the federal government had appealed the sentencing, and um, their appeal, they won the appeal, so the Hammonds were being sent back to prison, which is the, the case that had galvanized uh, Ammon's world, and particularly Ammon. So he came to town, and he was trying to convince the sheriff of Harney County, a man named David Ward, um, to, uh, to protect them and not allow them to be returned to prison under an idea um, that maybe some of you are familiar with that has a certain currency, especially in the West, called the idea of the constitutional sheriff. You hear it sometimes, I think you've been hearing it in Washington and Oregon in relation to uh, um, weapons bans, right? The idea that, that, and it often is mobilized around that, around sheriffs refusing to enforce new um, firearms restrictions. The idea which has 
a crazy provenance, which I won't go into right now, but which is explored in the book, um, is that the sheriff is the highest, the county sheriff is the highest law enforcement official in the land because it's the only elected law enforcement official and also, therefore, the true arbiter of what the Constitution means above the Supreme Court. Uh, Dave Ward didn't agree. He refused to do this. Um, And Ammon discovered that he was going to have to do something else to save the Hammond family because saving the Hammond family was required by God. Um, And his need to save America. Um, And so, therefore... He did a number of things, including creating basically a shadow government in the county of of local dissidents to invite him in to protect them. The Hammond family at this point had distanced themselves from him and didn't want him to protect them. So the the focus just kept getting larger um, to the point where on the day of a march in support of the Hammonds who were going back to prison in a couple days, um, Ammon led a breakaway group from that march that went out 30, 40 miles out into the desert, into the marshlands of the desert, um, and took over the refuge. In order to begin the task, they quickly announced, of returning all the federal public land of America to the people. Um, because for Ammon, that it's unconstitutional that there is such a thing. Um, and I'm going to talk to you, now I'm going to read a little bit about that day, that moment when they did that. The wonderful thing the Lord is about to accomplish. Ammon was proposing much more than he let on in his dear friend video address, and his online followers knew it, even if they didn't know yet what it was. He wouldn't publicly announce the location of his proposed hard stand until an hour before the scheduled march at a diner that doubled as a cluttered antiques emporium, not the only such establishment in Burns. The name of the diner, Ye Olde Castle, added a little more grandeur and kitsch to what was about to unfold. There in a back room, secluded at the last moment for the occasion, and hidden away behind all the 20th century bric-a-brac, gumball machines and old phonographs, antique prams and red wagons dangling overhead, Ammon finally unveiled the plan the Lord had revealed to him back in early December. Clustered around the table was a group made up mostly of -of out-of-towners. Some knew the Bundy family well. Others in attendance hardly knew how they'd ended up in the room at all. As Ammon prepared for the Lord's revelation and put out his final call to the faithful. Robert Lavoy Finnicum was already on his way north to join him, bringing Ammon's brother Ryan along for the ride. Finnicum, a rancher and therapeutic foster care specialist from the canyon lands of the isolated Arizona Strip, had befriended the Bundy family in April 2014. Maybe no one was a prouder veteran of the standoff at the Bundy Ranch than Lavoy. It had totally realigned his priorities and set him out on what would prove to be a one-way road to Malheur. Once in Oregon, Finnegan almost instantly emerged alongside Ammon as the other public face of the occupation. And what a face it was. Polished by wind and sun, its skin always seemed pulled a little extra taut around the hard insistence of his skull, as if expressive of the ideological intensity of this otherwise genial and welcoming devout Mormon cowboy. Unlike anyone else who joined the Bundys in occupying Malheur, Lavoie was an actual practicing cattleman, and he liked to dress the part, down to the revolver and the fringed and silver-studded leather chaps. His experience of the Battle of Bunkerville, which is the Bundy Ranch standoff, made for a very different narrative from those broadcast on the news and on the social media outlets of the militia types had been there. For Finnicum, the event had unfolded on horseback to the tempo of a slow, determined trot, 
powered by the measured nonviolent resistance of himself and his fellow horsemen in the wash. Lavoie's story, the riflemen on the bridge above them were merely a backdrop to what had been predominantly a cowboy's stand for freedom. That was the name. One cowboy's stand for freedom, he'd later given the website for his own Bundy-inspired struggle, a fight he'd unilaterally initiated with the Bureau of Land Management. This in spite of the fact that, as Lavoie himself said, he'd never actually had any problems with the agency. The Finnicums lived in one of the more isolated corners of the American West. The Arizona Strip had always been a place where people, including famously polygamist Mormon heretics, went to be left alone. In such a geographically and culturally remote zone, it would have been easy for Lavoie to assume that he'd be left at peace to roam the Red Rock along with his family and cows for the rest of his days. It would have been easy to assume that regulatory problems of the scale that Cliven had faced with the Bundy's proximity to Vegas and the issue of the desert tortoise, would never reach him and his family. But that was not how Lavoie Finnicum thought. That it was even possible for what had happened to Cliven to happen at all. That there was any chance of it happening to himself or any other rancher, this seems to have been too much for Finnicum to countenance. And in, in, in that time period, more national mon- there's a fear in those areas that more national monuments are going to be are going to be designated, and, and you know, Finnegan was worked up about that possibility. There had been more designated in Arizona and Utah over the last 20 years. But it was in 2015 he initiated his own struggle with the BLM, one cowboy stand for freedom. That year, in an intimate video address, Finnegan announced his own Cliven-inspired refusal of BLM authority over his grazing allotments. No longer would he accept federal dominion over his natural and constitutional rights. In this and subsequent videos, Lavoie proved himself to be an appealing rural malcontent, folksy, self-facing, sincere, and always steadfast and militant. His videos had garnered him a following in the patriot, patriot and libertarian spheres of the internet well before Malheur turned him into an icon. In Lavoie versus BLM Part 1, as he called his first video, viewers were introduced to Finnicum in full buckaroo mode. A kerchief wrapped around his bald pate flows down in a stream of colors, from beneath his cowboy hat. Throughout the video, you can hear his spurs jangle and scrape. He's got his black and white cow dog, Diamond, with him, too. Handsome and alert, she pants beside him. The two are getting older, Lavoie tells us, but she loves it out here, just like her master. Out beyond Lavoie and Diamond, you can see their world. It's good out here, he says, inviting us in. The valley is rimmed by buttes and ridges, festooned in juniper and pinion. Beyond it, you can see more buttes and canyon lands rowing, rolling away to the distant, to the horizon. The camera's mic picks up a gentle breeze, and off in the distance, a few of Lavoie's cows are munching away. It does look good out there. Damn good. The lushly green high desert meadow is rich with the kind of grass that better ranching practices, promoted by the BLM and employed by conscientious public land ranchers like Finnicum, have begun to bring back to some of the valleys of the Strip after a few generations of overgrazing. See the grass, he says. Look how thick it is. Look how green it is. And we're in late summer. He hasn't grazed this public land pasture in six years, he tells us. And these cows, the camera now swoops more closely across more of his cattle, are fat and sassy and looking good. And then he's off on a lecture about his grazing rights, how he owns this grass, not the land, which all leads soon enough to Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17 of the Constitution, which is where I usually get bored and go back to the beginning and watch him pet his dog and point out the mountains and the grass and the trees and his fat and sassy cows all over again. Why do I bother with this cowboy kitsch? Why am I drawn back to hear Lavoie Finnicum talk about his life again and again? I've watched it at least a dozen times. It is beautiful out there. 
But that's not why I'm watching. I'm watching Lavoy Finnicum talk about his life because Lavoy Finnicum isn't alive anymore. The first time I saw his video was the day he was shot and killed by Oregon State Police officers a little more than four weeks after he'd rolled into Burns, strolled into the Ye Olde Castle Family Restaurant and Antique Emporium, and sat down at a table in the back room to listen to what his friend Ammon had in mind. <laughs> One of the last people to enter that room was an ex-Mormon turned Messianic Jew named Brand Thornton. An HVAC specialist by trade, Thornton traced his family history in the Las Vegas area back multiple generations. Like Finnicum, Thornton is a Westerner through and through, a dedicated hunter and adventurer of the Intermountain West. Spend some time with him, and before long, you're off on a colorful narrative of one of his hunting expeditions, tracking or failing to track a bighorn ram or a pronghorn antelope through the midday heat of the desert sun and under the cold wheeling stars over rock through dust and sagebrush until the glorious moment of the kill. The walls of his Vegas townhouse are covered with taxidermied heads, each an epic yarn in itself. But Thornton is not just a jocular sportsman. Another proud veteran of Bundy Ranch, he is also an amiable ambassador from what they used to call the paranoid fringe. Thornton seems more like a far-out Jeff Bridges character than a maniac conspiracy theorist. Style makes a difference. Since meeting Brand one afternoon on the steps of the Marco Hat Hatfield Federal Courthouse in Portland, I spent hours engrossed by his emphatic infusions, which tales of hunting and desert exploration mingle with the 19th century, mingle with sagebrush libertarianism, New Age Kabbalah, right-wing conspiracy, and the 19th century messianic utopianism of Joseph Smith and the early Mormon church. In the middle of all this, he can drop lines of scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, or Latter-day Saint with the ease of a seminary-educated preacher. But whether he's explaining the workings of messianic time, describing his flight from government agents, detailing the moment of death of an ancient bighorn ram, a shower of ticks came clattering off its freshly lifeless body, or rhapsodizing about his pigeon stew, City Pigeon is much tastier than Morning Dove. Brand always seems to be enjoying every meaning-filled minute of what he believes to be the final days of human history. Heeding the calls to action from the Bundy family, he'd, invived, he'd arrived in Burns a couple days before Lavoie Finnecum and Ryan Bundy. He'd been milling about in the cold in the Safeway parking lot, waiting for the march, for the protest march to begin that morning. Bored, he'd approached a group of militia organizers and been told to go away that their conversation was confidential. That's when a mysterious blonde-haired stranger gave him a sign. The unknown woman had come up behind him, he never saw her face, and pointed over his right shoulder at the restaurant on the other side of the parking lot. You're wanted over there, she'd said, without even questioning her, which was strange. It isn't like me at all, he told me. Brand walked over and followed a man he recognized as John Ritzheimer into the restaurant and down a hallway to a locked door. Ritzheimer, who was one of the principal figures around Bundy at that time, knocked, the door opened, and the two men were ushered inside. I don't think they would have let me in if I weren't behind John, Brand told me. I wasn't part of the insider crew. Later, when he told everyone about the blonde woman in the parking lot, they all thought he was crazy. No such woman knew about this meeting, they told him. In the intervening months, Brand tried without success to find out who she might have been. He's come to think the stranger may possibly have been an angel. Ammon poured out his heart and plan to the small crowd gathered around the table. The assembled were invited to head out into the basin and take over the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge, a place most of them had never heard of and to which Ammon himself had still never been. A hand went up. It was Lavoie Finnicum. 
Lavoy later recounted this moment for the media man of the Oath Keepers militia in a video filmed on the occupied refuge. Ammon, he recalled, saying, are you telling me that all these years we've been trying to draw a defensive line, getting pressed here, stepping back, pressed here, stepping back, we keep losing ground. Are you now saying that this is a peaceful step forward to reclaim? Yes, that is what he meant, Ammon said. I says, well, that's what I thought you meant, recalled Lavoy. Finnegan was ready right then to sign on, and so was Brand Thornton. Brand was ready before he really understood what Ammon was even proposing. I was the first person to tell Ammon I was with him, Brand recalls proudly. My heart said yes immediately, and I knew. Instantly I knew. Once the spirit comes in you, you have a choice. I recognized it, and I had, a, had to make a very quick decision to go with it. You have to decide quickly in this kind of circumstance, he elaborated, so you don't lose the spirit. I knew what I was up against. I had to make a quick decision before fear entered my heart and pushed out that revelation. As Brand and others in the room understood it, God couldn't act in the world without humans receiving the spirit and choosing whether or not to follow. It was up to everyone at the table to decide for themselves, as Ammon had put it that day before, the day before in his dear friend's address, whether this is a righteous cause or not, whether I am some crazy person, or whether the Lord truly works through individuals to get his purposes accomplished. Free personal agency was of profound importance. Stand, because when you stand, others will stand with you, and God can't stand with you if you don't stand. Once you stand, you can expect the hand of providence to be over you, is how Lavoie had explained the matter at the dramatic end of his 2015 video, Lavoie versus BLM Part 1, before rising from his cowboy crouch and vanishing off screen, spurs clanking. All this theology raised the stakes for folks like Brand and Lavoie. Their immortal souls hung in the balance. The decision had been easier for Brand because he hadn't taken the mortal dangers of the expedition all that seriously, not at first. Engrossed as he was in the phenomenology of spiritual inspiration, he didn't understand why there seemed to be so much tension in the room now about whether or not to follow Ammon. He recalls one couple whom he assumed from their dress and manner to be local ranchers. They hadn't wanted to sit at the table with the others and had stayed back leaning against the wall during Ammon's appeal. As soon as Ammon's plan was revealed, they'd gone out the door. Another man whom Brand recognized from Patriot Circles, the Idaho militiaman and Bundy Ranch veteran Eric Parker, didn't go so quietly. Brand remembers him objecting strenuously to Ammon's plan. He was totally against it, he told me. There was much to object to. Ammon didn't have the support of the locals. He didn't have the support of the sheriff. He didn't have any legitimate business doing what he was proposing. Brand remembers Parker even saying that Ammon was no better than the feds who'd locked up to Hammonds. He was practically screaming at Ammon. He was shaking. He was so angry and pointing his finger. At the time, Brand couldn't figure out what all Parker's intensity was about. Color me stupid, but I didn't get it. Like, what's with all the drama with these people? As far as Brand was concerned, Ammon, whom he remembers mentioning that the refuge workers would be on vacation, was just talking about an extension of what we were doing here in town. It might be a little dangerous, but protests always were. We'll go out to this place, and we'll leave when the workers come back. I was really naive, he added, chuckling at himself. After the meeting broke up, Brand joined the others who'd agreed to head out to the refuge. This vanguard called themselves the tip of the spear. They assembled in the fairgrounds parking lot in the edge of town without Ammon, who'd headed over to the march to round up more supporters. After they kneeled in prayer to consecrate their intention, Lavoie pointed at the road to Malheur. Gentlemen, that is the Rubicon, and once we cross that, there's no turning, the cowboy had proclaimed. Brand was baffled by Lavoie's intensity, but he also began to wonder something else. What does he know that I don't? 
So we'll skip this part here where we learn more about a... We won't have time for learning about Brand's ministry of the shofar. Um, Brand, as a Messianic Jew, um, has has structured his, his religious practice around a shofar that he takes with him everywhere. Um, and when he came to the refuge and realized what was going on, um, there's a whole scene where he blows the shofar because he believes that the reticulations of the shofar um, both create new reality, new material reality, and also bring peace and calm, calm people down. Because once he realized that his friends were going through the we're going through the refuge with guns, clearing it. He became concerned that something might happen, but nothing happened because nobody was there. It was January 2nd. Um, the refuge was open, but nobody was working there. Um, the crew moved in, um, and they stayed there for quite a while. Um, they stayed there for three weeks until the leadership was arrested. Then um, p- the different groups of people who had come and gone, but there was a core group of people who joined Ammon and Lavoie. Um, out there. Um, most of those people fled, but there were four people who stayed and they were ringed in by the FBI for about, um, well, another 11 days or so until, until mid February. Um, uh, but before all that happened, before the arrests, um, there was a lot of back and forth and a, an ongoing propaganda war often taking place on social media as much as in person. There were a lot of town meetings. Um, and Lavoie Finnicum, him in particular became involved in um, a back and forth with the people who first brought me into this story or um, my first contacts in this story, uh, the Burns Paiute tribe, um, the Paiute people of, of Harney County, who, uh, when the group took over the refuge um, and Ammon and Lavoie and friends announced that they were there to return um, the land to the rightful owners who for them were ranchers. Well, in some sense, it would be like the people, an idea of the people, or in other cases seemed to be actually, there was an idea they were going to discover individual family ranchers that the land had been taken from, um, <coughs> which is a whole other confusing thing, which we won't go into here. But the, the tribe held a press conference and was like, oh, interesting, rightful owners. We've got some ideas about who that might be. We get it, you don't mean us, but we're going to tell our story. And they had media from all over the world there to tell the story of that tribe, which is, again, a story we're not going to get into in depth here, but is in the book. Um, and a f- fascinating and, you know, both horrifying and, um, tale, but also a tale of incredible perseverance uh, of a group of people who are displaced from their land, but refuse to accept that displacement and, and have returned and still a key part of that community to this day. And we're a key part of, uh, the eventual defeat of this plan. Um, but Lavoie, who grew up on the Navajo reservation, um, seemed to feel a very strong need to try to connect with the tribe and also to forge an alliance with the tribe. And the back and forth, or there really was no back and forth, his one-way missives to them formed what to me were a fascinating part of the occupation, especially in the days right before the culmination of the first stage of the occupation and um, Lavoie Finnegan's death. Uh, So I'll read some of that before we're done here. Finnicum's confusion and sincerity can make his January 20th video painful viewing. This is his first video to the tribe about the artifacts that are stored. This is his first video to the tribe about the artifacts that are stored on on the refuge. In it, we watch Lavoie in the video as he goes through the boxes of artifacts in what looks like a dark basement. As always, he's wearing his big cowboy hat, his face under it stretched ruddy and bright across the firm insistence of his skull. He makes clear that this visit is being staged as a reach out to the Paiute, the rightful owners of the objects in the room, 
We're looking for a liaison, he says, because we want to make sure these things are returned to the rightful owners. He continues about the room, pointing out artifacts, enumerating the wrongs they've suffered. A special outrage to Lavoie is the rodent's nest that's been discovered in one of the boxes. So the way I understand it, translates Blaine Cooper from behind the camera, is that the BLM, Blaine Cooper's another one of the occupiers, is that the BLM, whoever is in charge of these native artifacts, it was the Fish and Wildlife Service, just kind of boxed them up and let them rot down here. Lavoie, meanwhile, keeps moving through the basement, picking up and putting down ancient points and tools. As he does so, to the traditional sensibility of the Paiute to whom this video was addressed, he was also unsettling all the volatile spiritual residue left hundreds or thousands of years ago by who knows how many thousands of native dead. But Finnegan and friends are moving in a different time. With quiet outrage, Lavoie, checking the artifact tags, establishes that sometimes for decades this stuff has just been sitting down here, locked away for nobody for, but for them, the feds, to look at whenever they come down here. Satisfied, he's made his case. Finnicum wraps up, reiterating his plea for dialogue, even going so far as to declare a willingness to hear about the Paiute claims on the land, claims that Ryan Bundy had recently dismissed, before the video concludes with a demand, this time from Cooper. The rightful owners need to come back and claim their belongings. It sounds like the Paiute are about to be evicted from a storage space. Of course, it wasn't going to be that simple. The boys weren't going to pack up history and hand it off respectfully to the rightful owners. Neither was the tribe overly concerned about dirt or animals mingling with the objects. It's not just the artifacts, Charlotte Roderick told me, weeks after it was all over. We're in the dirt. Our history and culture is in the soil. The problem for Charlotte and her tribe wasn't so much that there was dirt on the artifacts or that animals had been in the boxes where they were stored, but that the artifacts were out of the earth at all and being rifled through on the internet by a man whose words and actions, despite his assertion of his desire to be respectful, were nowhere near appropriately reverent. If you view the artifact video of the traditionalist Watatika perspective in mind, that's the Paiute name for this um, Paiute band, um, it gets freaky. It's like Finnegan is surrounded by so many ghosts that he can't see them. It's like he can't see them because they are everything. They are the air he's breathing, the ground he's walking on. They are what's stored in the boxes, stacked on boxes, stacked on boxes, seeping from the objects, chipped by hand, used and discarded for millennia by the people known as Watatika and by their ancestors. It's in the nightmare of the settler, repackaged as Stephen King horror. He's about to be ambushed by the silence of the dead. And he can't sense that silence because he's the one talking, telling his own story about how horrible the dirt and animals, how horrible for the poor artifacts, the sacred property, to sit in a room undisplayed since, a long ago, since as long ago as 1980, a time frame with no significance when one considers the epical timescape, times, timescapes of native presences and absences in the land of Malheur. In this storeroom of artifacts, this is nothing. The ground of the Harney Basin he's walking on every day is full of these belongings. They are buried in the dirt and marsh muck and just lying around on the surface. Nobody will ever be able to come by and pick it all up. You can't just leave history out on the stoop for the rightful owners. It's everywhere. It's in everything. He's surrounded by a relationship, and he's also in one, one for which he's not going to be able to dictate the terms. The dead weren't the only ones getting restless. Neither were the Watertika the only ones watching. After Finnegan posted his video, the law enforcement response to the occupation took a major strategic turn. The very next day, Ammon Bundy found 14 messages on his cell phone from an FBI agent who identified himself only as Chris. It was the first contact he'd received from federal authorities. 
From this point forward, the pressure was on. Drones and piloted aircraft began to buzz the compound regularly as the formidable military presence of the FBI out on the Burns airfield shifted into a more active mode. Um, I first talked to Jarvis Kennedy, and Jarvis Kennedy is somebody who's introduced um, earlier in the, in the book. He's a, he was, at that time, a member of the uh, Burns Pirate Tribal Council. I first talked to Jarvis on the phone a few days after the FBI had surprised Ammon, Lavoie, and the rest of the leadership on a snowbound road in the Malheur National Forest. You know, he said, we don't think it's a coincidence that Finnicum died. No disrespect. We feel for his family. We didn't want that to happen to him. But you can't go with me- messing with objects like that without protection. Whenever we find anything, he explained, we bless it, say a prayer or sing, sprinkle some tobacco or sage on it, and return it to the earth because it's ours but not ours. I think that's hard for people to understand. Often the explanations of cultural practices and feelings that I've received from tribal members and Burns are punctuated with variations of this last phrase. I don't know if you can understand that. It's hard to explain. It's hard for people to understand. These refrains usually coming at moments of intense interest for me. Moments when I feel very much that I understand what is being said and am eager to learn more have reminded me to be skeptical of how much I think I understand. Inevitably, there is much I do not. There was much here Lavoie didn't understand either, which is partly why he was able to imagine that something like a dimension threaded through the land and through the Paiute could somehow be boxed up and handed over. The basic misunderstanding involved with the artifacts at Malheur is extended well beyond the specifics of the Bundyites' relation to the Wadatika. It is the source of ongoing conflict between tribal relations to ancestral lands and the economic, scientific, cultural, and theological views that underpin all the private and governmental institutions with which tribes have to negotiate. Tribal archaeologist Diane Tiemann told me that for her, the land feels more like a relative than a good she could own. It's a family relationship. Ownership doesn't describe that. You can't own your relative. Everyone around here, all the dirt I dig up in my garden, my ancestors are woven through that, and that land is woven through me. I don't know if people can understand. It's hard to explain. Her traditionalist relationship to land has informed her non-Western approach to the Western discipline of archaeology. It's a community in the dirt, she told me. I used that word. And when we dig, it's an offense against that community. It's why I became an archaeologist not so much to participate in this particular knowledge-gathering system of the West, but to minimize the offense that archaeology is to these communities in the soil. She recognizes this as a somewhat quixotic position. I was struck by how it was also a very practical one, devoid of any of the absolute all-or-nothing, when-will-you-stand purity that Lavoie and the Bundys espoused. Archaeology is here to stay for the moment. It has tremendous power over how the meaning and value of lands immeasurably precious to the Wadatika are culturally and legally determined at local and national scales. Diane saw no choice but to participate and hope that something like what she calls real collaboration, not just adding an Indian or two to your team, will keep happening. The Burns Piote had found this kind of real collaboration over the last two decades in the relationship the tribe enjoyed with the Fish and Wildlife Service archaeologist on the Malia Refuge. Diane hoped that as this kind of collaboration increased, it would form part of a larger development of more robust transcultural knowledge-gathering practices that might, with changes in laws governing artifacts, eventually lead to some or all of the artifacts stored on the refuge being returned to the dirt communities from whence they came. This is an ultimate goal that can be very hard for people outside the perspective to understand. 
In the larger culture, artifacts are things that belong in museums, carefully cared for, curated, cleaned. If there is dirt on them, then they are dirty, disrespected. This is how Lavoie had seen the artifacts stashed in the basement room on the refuge. To, to Diane's mind, on the other hand, what was important was not the dirt or the rats, but the, the objects were still on site, still close to the dirt they'd come from. If they were to be transferred to a museum collection and properly cared for, legally returning them to the soil would become even more difficult. In her scholarly work, Diane talks about the inadequacy of Western ideas of property and of the sacred when it comes to describing Paiute relationships to landscape. Compared with the vocabulary she offers in its stead, the language of God and law can seem both pompous and impoverished. While the typical ethnographic description of a nomadic foraging culture like that of the northern Paiute might present their concept of land ownership as non-existent and their religious practices as animistic, Diane proposes a different understanding of landscape as a palimpsest of ever-shifting relations, so that in her words, an action on a landscape is not only an action on prior acts and events, but also the people who are involved in those activities. Thinking like this can also make Diane's gardening complex. And not only because the dirt is like a relative shot through with the material traces of her ancestors. Our conversation turned to Oitz, the 19th century Watartika shaman and dreamer prophet who played a big role in the society of the Malia Reservation and in the rebellion of the Bannock Paiute War. There was no strict catechism for dreamers, but Oitz was known to have strongly rejected uh, agriculture, to have strongly rejected agriculture and with it private property as the great dreamer prophet of the Columbia Plateau, Smohalla, had also done. The most complete written record we have of 19th century dreamer doctrine comes from a conversation Smohalla had with a U.S. Army ambassador sent to measure his mind and perhaps convince the prophet and his one album people to take up farming and ownership of individual plots of land in order to become properly civilized. Smohalla explained to his guest, whom he treated to a, to a salmon feast, that both land ownership and what the white Americans that his people called Bostons thought of as being work were prohibited to dreamers. Men who work, he'd said, cannot dream. In Smohalla's vision, those who violated the earth by owning it or digging deeply in it to cultivate specific plants solely for human consumption would lose access to the coming world when the earth was literally to be overturned and reborn. All the native dead were, were to return with this refreshed and plentiful earth al alongside lost populations of animals and plants as the dream world merged with this one and purged itself of Bostons. These ideas had made their way down through the Blue Mountains to Oitz. I think I can see what he meant, Diane told me. There's something very strange, kind of absurd, about taking one part of the earth and saying only this kind of plant will grow here now and that this plant's only purpose is to be eaten by me. I've been thinking a lot about food lately in this way. It does totally go against our sense of reverence and reciprocity. It's so important to acknowledge that nothing exists just for me. If we take a plant or part of a plant, we always make an offering or ask permission. We need to respect the plant's liberty. Loy Finnicum, of course, had a very different understanding of liberty, a somewhat extreme and colorful version of what remains the mainstream American understanding. It is a dispensation that is rarely extended to plants. Liberty is for people, or people in their property and corporations and money. To Smohalla and his disciple Oitz, this had been an obvious contradiction. Property and liberty were at odds. In Mormon cosmogony, the earth has a very specific purpose. It exists for human growth. 
For devout Latter-day Saints like Lavoie, our time on earth, our earthly sojourn, is a test we must pass before continuing on our spiritual way. Liberty, or personal agency, was the other crucial ingredient in salvation. I believe that the first principle of heaven is personal agency, Ryan Bundy told me two years after his friend Lavoie's fight for personal agency had taken his life. A lot of people think faith is the first principle, but before faith, you must have the ability to choose. You must have your liberty. We believed that we existed before this life as spirits, as intelligences, that we dwelt with him in a pre-mortal realm. It was his design that we should progress to become more like him. We need to have a body and experience mortal life, and that's what this mortal life is. We are spiritual beings that are here on earth having a mortal experience. When you view yourself as a child of God, you begin to have a different perspective. As far as Ryan was concerned, this perspective meant that the only legal purpose of government is aiding the individual in claiming, using, and defending his rights. This minimal government wasn't quite anarchism, a charge Ryan and his friends had to continually confront, but it came close at times. It sounded even closer in the interview Lavoie Finnicum gave Jason Tadenhove, the heavily tattooed media guy of the Oath Keepers militia at Occupied Malheur. The two men talked of the relation between firearms and freedom and the ideal world they had both found prefigured in the communities formed in anti-government militia operations like Bundy Ranch and Malheur. As in his novel, because Lavoie Finnicum is also a novelist, um, he, wrote a, he wrote a novel, um, Finnegan presented a familiar fantasy version of the American frontier, an apolitical world of self-reliant non-relation, where firearms and fences suffice to make good neighbors. Regarding firearms, he says to Tattenhove, one sword tends to keep another sword in its sheath, and that's exactly where all the guns should be, is holstered in their sheaths, and we should all be neighborly, kind, and friendly. Lavoie's smiling, nodding as he says this, in front of the fireplace in one of the older Conservation Corps buildings in the refuge. What appears to be the grip of an antique pistol, or perhaps the handle of a knife, pokes up out of his jeans over his southwest native patterned shirt. And I'll finish here with a little... The day before he died, um, Finnegan made his last direct plea to the to the tribe um, in a video, again, about the artifacts. And uh, we'll finish our time with Lavoie with this. In this last missive, Lavoie is crouching in the doorway of one of the stone buildings of the refuge. He tells the camera about his native bloodlines, Comanche and Pima, he claims. He talks about his youth on the Navajo reservation and his time among the Lakota. Moving on from his native cred, he assures his viewers that their sacred objects will not be handled or mistreated before turning to today's real pitch. It is time, he says, like he seemed to be saying to, every, saying to everyone in his final days. It is time, Paiute people here of Kearney County. It is time for you to throw off the BIA, to become a completely sovereign, independent nation without them. He takes off his gloves. He pivots on his heels. I believe in the American people, he continues. I believe in the Native Americans. It is time for them to stand up and throw off the federal government out of their own nations. Now he's reaching his right arm from his heart toward you. You, Paiute people of Harney County. I hope to see you soon, he says, drawing out the soon a little. 
now gesturing toward the camera, now looking down, looking up. The anaphoric refrain drops away. We'll be on the same side. We, 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 he stammers, are not enemies. That is all I have to say. I think I'll stop there. There was a whole other bird passage where I go out to the refuge and spend a lot of time with uh, the birds on the kind of at the very beginning when the refuge is finally opened again after the occupation. But I think this will be a good place to close. Um, and maybe take some questions. If people have questions about either what they've heard or about, um, about this whole event um, or about other parts of the story that you may have followed or anything. If people could use the mic, that'd be great. I'm curious um, if you did interviews with the people who were involved in the occupation and how many interviews you did and kind of what that experience was like talking with them. Well, you get the sense of Brand, for example. Um, that was all with Brand. Uh, that All the stuff from Brand was talking to Brand. Um, Either I spent a lot of time with him at, at the trials in Portland. Um, he came up. He was never he was never charged, um, but he testified in uh, the fall 2016 and in the um, well, actually in the spring 2017 trial he didn't testify because he was afraid he was going to be trapped into perjury or something. I can't remember what I can't remember exactly why he didn't. I don't, that doesn't sound right. I don't think it was concerned about perjury. I can't remember why, but he didn't testify, but he was there. And the defense had an actor read his testimony while he was in the court watching. Um, wow. uh, so I spent a lot of time with Brandon Portland and, um, and also just on the phone. I did a lot of phone interviews and with a lot of other people associated with uh, with the uh, Bundy Revolution, um, a person you don't meet here named Neil Wampler was very helpful. Um, one of the occupiers who was found not guilty in the fall of 2016. Um, and a number of the other occupiers who are out there appear in the book from interviews, often during the trials and um, at other events or actions that they took. Um, and then also um, an important character who comes in later is a man named John Lamb, an ex-Amish man from Montana. Um, who joined the group after all of this and became kind of a leader of the group um, during their period in court and is still an important figure among them. And then I talked to Ammon and to to Ryan um, after they finally got after they got out of prison um, in 2018 um, when the charges they were both acquitted in this case in Oregon and then but they were arrested on charges. Um, regarding the standoff in Nevada around that time. So, um, but then that case uh, was thrown out of court because of uh, government malfeasance, basically. There was uh, 3,000 pages of discovery evidence were withheld by federal prosecutors and the judge throughout the case and dismissed the indictment. And so that's when I finally got to meet uh, Ammon and Ryan face-to-face -face after working on this book for a long time. And that's kind of at the end of the book. And then did some phone interviews with Ryan afterwards, too. So the quotes about uh, Mormon doctrine from Ryan come from last year. So um, I'm sure I'm forgetting some of them. But uh, there's a whole chapter in here, too, about there was a huge, uh, not, huge is not the right word. There's a very lengthy protest that they did in the desert in Nevada um, outside a private prison run by a company that used to be called a 
Corrections Corporation of America that has renamed himself, themselves, uh, I don't think they see it as ironic, but Core Civic is their new name. They run a lot of private prisons and uh, immigrant detention centers, but Ammon and Ryan were in a private prison with their father for about two years in the Nevada desert, which became the focus of a protest for that community, and they had a, a camp, and they would circle it every day on, a, they called it a Jericho march, and Bran Thornton would blow the shofar on the, on the, on the Jericho march. Um, they had gathered out there because Ammon had, uh, they, the, the Bundy family and their friends learned a lot about American um, prisons over the two years after their arrest. Um, in 2016, including what Ammon was doing a lot of like passive resistance of prison policies as, as his want. And um, he ended up, uh, this, is, it's a, this is a pretty common kind of practice in, in, in legal practice, apparently, in, in those facilities. He was uh, handcuffed with his hands behind his back and stuffed in a shower stall for 13 hours because of his refusal to um, observe certain policies. Um, and then um, his followers came and set up a camp outside that uh, prison, which isn't that far from where I live, so I went and visited them there. And they were doing this amazing thing, um, so complicated. They set up, from the dimensions of the shower stall that Ammon was handcuffed in, they created replica shower stalls out in the desert that they then live-streamed themselves in in the same position, handcuffed so that they could suffer as Ammon had suffered. And then they would live-stream they live -streamed this and would collect donations for Ammon's defense. Though nobody ever made it to 13 hours. One person made it to 10. Um, did an overnight. And they would live... These videos are made... There's like a 10-hour video of someone just suffering in a box and talking. Um, it's like they discovered, it's like they discovered uh, performance art through, through, the whole, through this whole process. And it was very strange to encounter them coming from the perspective I come from, which is not theirs um, in many ways. Um, not the same background in any way and not politically at all coming from the same, same, same place. But to suddenly find them out in the desert protesting something that had been um, of great concern to me as well. Um, for a long time. Ammon was, by the time he got out of prison, Ammon was advocating the abolition of prisons um, and the replacement of prisons with a system of like restitution and rehabilitation. Um, since he's gotten out of prison, I haven't heard him talk about that so much, but um, that was a thing he was sounded very serious about at that time. Um, they're a complicated bunch of people. Um, more questions? This event made me very frightened when it happened and angry. Yeah, a lot of people did. Yeah, it made, that, made a lot of people feel but I'm wondering what you think, um, what is the impact of this event? How do you see it as a historical event? Uh, are there waves that ripple out from it? Has it energized other militia groups or other uh, land property right groups? Uh, how does it fit? Uh, well, it's interesting to think about it. To think about it historically, because one of my main focuses in the book has been how much 19th century history was was born born forward by that event, and also like the the tribes' involvement really highlighted. Um, I think made really clear what the occupation as a if you think of the occupation also as a performance um, was a kind of. Uh, Restaging of 19th century Western white settlement 
and stealing of land and all that violence, but restaging it as a, for the internet, as a community of feeling that provided then all these like feelings of belonging and mattering and, and incredible significance because as you heard at the beginning, Ammon was offering nothing less than like you're saving America and not just America, but you're helping human time be ushered toward its correct end if you come out and do this. But the, the method to do that was to restage Western settlement on land that they didn't know was sacred native land. But of course it was, right? Um, so that aspect of history, I feel like it reverberates backwards. And in the, in, the, in the story, I feel like has a great, I'll get back to the other part, moving towards the future part of your question, because I feel like it also is an image for, um, that gives us a picture of so many of the impasses that we face culturally and politically right now, right? Um, of, the, of the unresolved history of the 19th century just circulating madly on Facebook, right? Uh, but that, I mean, maybe Facebook, um, the Facebook dispensation maybe brings me to, to, the, to a more proper answer to your question, which would be like, I, I see the, um, the thing I see is alarming about what they were able to do in Oregon. Um, and this is something that Sheriff Dave Ward of Harney County will tell you more directly because he experienced it the most directly is that, um, you have a county out there that's impoverished, um, with a very impoverished public, public sector. You have a sheriff's department dealing with a county that is, the size of Massachusetts with 7,000 people and four sheriff's deputies or five, depending on the budget. Um, and very easily using this community of feeling on Facebook that was very horizontal, not very tightly organized at all, um, was able to instantly challenge the sovereignty of federal and local power in that area by just by virtue of the amount of inspiration Ammon was able to pour into the internet. Um, and I think that becomes, to use kind of Ammon's kind of language, a shit of shadows and types, right? That it becomes a shadow of a, maybe a larger kind of problem or a future kind of things that can happen when you have broken down civil society or whatever you want to call it. And also like a tremendous amount of alienation, a tremendous amount of intense, ugly feeling circulating and also a broken down public sector um, combined. And then you also have this the strangeness of the world of the platforms, which are a public space that's also privatized, right? And in a sense, automated, a space of like where intense feeling is poured into a space and then automated and increased. And it has, I feel like this is the most difficult thing to think about with this story. It has a relationship to sovereignty, to political sovereignty and governance that, um, that's what that feels the most ominous to me. Where it's why it's why this story seems to me like when I when I saw a couple of weeks ago that Facebook and um, some of its partners announced that they're going to create their own currency. It, I, maybe that that connection I can see how the connection to this story might feel tenuous, but I've been thinking a lot how Facebook created the possibilities of this, but Facebook is also very actively involved in circumventing and undermining um, different forms of sovereignty and creating through that. New forms of, I don't even, is it sovereignty or is it governance or is it unsovereignty? I don't know what it is, but certainly like the idea of a, them having their own currency would be like outside of the sovereignty of, 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 of government, of, of national governments being able to regulate that currency, right? Um, so that larger concern I see reverberating up from that story. But then also more specifically, we asked about militia stuff. 
like Eminem, like that group is that air, that, that, that world is really disorganized. Right. And also right now they're very fractured, um, actually because of Trump. Um, and because of Ammon, Ammon has kind of broken with that world. I don't know if he would use that terminology, but over the uh, rhetoric around uh, the caravans in 2018, um, because uh, a lot of that militia world that had allied with his family is very heavily uh, Trumpian and very anti-immigrant. Um, he it made an, another video speech like he does um, at his desk. Was he at his desk? It was a different, but he made another one of his addresses saying that he had done his research again and decided that people from Honduras and, and everywhere that were coming were, were suffering from real calamities and that it was our duty as Christians to welcome them and that he was very ang ups not angry. He was very upset about the, the rhetoric in his world and the rhetoric coming from the president and began to speak of that as sounding like Nazi Germany and things like this. And then he received a torrent of abuse from people who had supported him before who told him, you know, they wished he was dead or um, that they hadn't helped him. So he's no longer, he's no longer a galvanizing force in that community. But, you know, it can always happen that somebody else could be, right? And because of the power of the internet, something like that could happen again. And then I see with things like, um, like one flashpoint in the West could be issues about climate change legislation. Um, especially if, when, when climate change bills have a particular intently, intent impact on rural communities that are already intensely suffering economically, and you also already have these kinds of discourses circulating about the constitutional sheriff or about, we didn't get into it today, but the rhetoric of the war on rural America, which is a big thing for like the, like the Oath Keepers militia. Um, so you have, if you have flashpoints like that, you have the ability of the internet to, to automate and uh, allow people to organize more of an, in a flash mob and less, less plotted out year by year organizational way. Um, you have the presence of an incredible amount of firearms in America. Um, and all it takes then, I think, is like a certain charismatic figure or a galvanizing figure to, to end up with a very different kind of American yellow vest kind of, Situation, which I think would involve more guns, and that does alarm. That that does feel potentially alarming, and something that I mean, I think that every, you know, every effort to to craft um, climate change um, legislation and programs has to take in mind, right? and it, and it's why it seems so important that all of those efforts be happening on multiple scales from local up to federal and, and be done thoughtfully and, and nimbly, right? And with all sorts of engagements in. Our son is chief hydrologist for U.S. Fish and Wildlife. He's based in Portland. We spend a lot of time with him mm -hmm. on the Malheur Reservation. Oh yeah, um, several years ago. Uh, but what really struck me about this, which we didn't hear at all, that I recall, is this whole sense of God calling, hmm? yeah. and the whole Mormon messianic sort of thing. Uh, 
None of that came through from the media, as far as I know. Uh, it, it did. Uh, did I just miss it? I, I'm, I'm assuming that this present point is the media doesn't know anything about church anyway. <laughs> generally, I mean, it really doesn't. I'm a clergyman, and I, I'm always objecting to the fact they don't know a goddamn thing about what they're uh, talking about most of the time, and during, especially in terms of church history or science and religion, all that kind of. Crap, somebody is always messing all that around with all that stuff. But anyway, just in terms of, did the media pick up on that at all? I mean, it seems to me that was fundamental to what you're talking about. A second question, if I can pass it along from my son, is where do you think the next malheur will happen? And he thinks it might be over water rights in yeah. um, cash um, what, down below, uh, down in, in where? Nevada. In Nevada? The, what is it? Uh, the cash metals. Oh, interesting. Yeah, he just, he just tossed that off. When I talked to him this morning about you coming. <laughs> I would, I, I don't know about that particular case, but it would seem to me that water rights are going to be the, yeah. the big fights. And that, I mean, that then creates different constellations, right? Because I, one of the big places, is it Spring Valley, Nevada? Um, up in the Great Basin, there's a, there's like that where Las Vegas is buying up the water rights. So then you have like environmental is very concerned, but also ranchers are very concerned. Um, and actually Las Vegas is at the heart of this whole story. Like this never would have, this never would have happened without Las Vegas. Strangely enough, it'd be all start the tortoise, the tortoise had to be protected. Las Vegas had to grow. And that's when they came to deliver the new regulations to Cliven and Cliven discovered his, his special layout. Um, but it would seem to me, and in Harney County too, the, the water is a huge issue now. Um, they've been in the kind of, if, if you're familiar, if people are familiar with farming, pra- dry farming practices, or this is a dry farming practice really, but the issues around pivot farming out in the dry lands and out in the desert, there's a lot of like, it's one of the absurdities we get with a, with global capital where you have like people drilling into aquifers in the desert to, make pivot farms where you're growing alfalfa, which is then being shipped to China. So it's basically creating bales of water and shipping them out of the country in places and the water tables are going down. That's a huge problem, obviously, for birds and for agriculture. Um, But to the first part, I think there was a little bit, I mean, it was definitely, I was definitely aware from coverage, like these people are LDS because of some of the statements that Ammon made very early on got a lot of coverage, but then I don't think that it was picked up on beyond that. I think the, the, the mainstream coverage kind of focused on, did a kind of election year thing. Like, people left behind. These people are upset. What are they upset about? Um, what is public land? And that was it, right? And then, um, and then, you know, there were uh, different coverage depending, was, you know, entirely depending on what political bent the, 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 uh, the organ followed. This is going to be the last question. Thank you. You've mentioned the constitutional sheriff uh, philosophy a couple of times, and mm-hmm. in the Q&A, you, you've been talking about governance. I'd heard from people who were very close in the area at mm. the time, and I believe you mentioned this, the sheriff of Harney County was not... He was not a, a posse comitatus kind of a sheriff. He really didn't want this occurring in his county. And when the ambush took place, they were going to a public meeting in a county, one county over, mm-hmm. where the sheriff was a leader of this 
alternate governance constitutional mm-hmm. sheriff move, movement. Can can you comment about that? Um, yeah, he's that that sheriff um, who makes a brief appearance in the book um, of uh, uh, Grant County to the north of uh, of Harney County was uh, voted the um, the constitutional lawman of the year. I believe is the award by the. Uh, I'm, not, I'm going to get the, the acronym of the organization wrong now. It's like the constitutional. It's very long. It's got like peace officers and lawmen and whoever whoever it can draw in. Um, and it's 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 basically the organ of a man named Richard Mack, um, who is um, from Arizona. Um, and in a lot of ways, I think Richard Mack, uh, we talk about this a lot in the book, and Sheriff Dave Ward talked about this with me a lot when I, in the times I talked with him, because Mack also reached out to him. Um, and Mack had been associated with the Ammon, with, with Ammon and the Bundy family, though they also broke over the, when Ammon was in prison and started talking about prison reform, him and Mack had a split. Um, but at that time, that that idea, I think, really was really important for Ammon, and it, and it really came from Mac, who is um, a Latter Day Saint, devout Latter Day Saint, um, who studied, whose mentor was a man um, named Cleon Skousen, who um, uh, is the person also who annotated all of the constitutions. That if you've ever seen any of the Patriot types or Bundyite types, they usually carry a copy of the Constitution. Very curiously, with an oil painting, a reproduction of an oil painting of what looks like a wax sculpture of George Washington on the cover. Um, and it's, it's, it's the Constitution, but with comments from Skusen, who is, um, somebody in that same sort of John Birch milieu, right? And Richard Mack, I think, in a lot of ways, like brings forward is somebody who is like a direct contact and bring for brings forward those ideas. But he also brings forward the ideas of the posse comitatus, which is where the constitutional sheriff idea comes from. Um, though I think that the way things work, and this is something also Sheriff Mack told me. I mean, not Sheriff Mack. Um, Dave Ward told me that he thinks that when he talks to people who have learned this idea, because it's not just people amongst the. Uh, who are do- directly involved with the uh, Bundy IT hears it a lot in out in Eastern Oregon. Um, that people aren't aware of the uh, the origins of that idea. If you're not, I'm not, are you guys familiar with the Posse Comitatus? Yeah. Right. So there, I mean, there's 60s and 70s. Um, very frightening, really um, violent, virulently racist and anti-Semitic um, militia and religious kind of Christian identity organization and. Uh, William Gale appears. William Gale is the main preacher and charismatic figure of that group. Um, very disturbing and strange dude. Um, who, uh, one of his, the main parts of his doctrine is the idea of the constitutional sheriff. Um, that the sheriff is the highest law authority and then land. And if the sheriff won't defend the constitution, this, this and this play, this idea filtered into Harney County. If the sheriff won't do it, then it's the duty of the people to hang the sheriff. Um, and that sort of idea was still whispering around Harney County at the time of um, the occupation. Um, a lot of people suffered a lot in the course of this story, but uh, Sheriff Ward in particular was a lot of what happened was focalized on him. Yeah, because the coworkers are still suffering something. They're just under therapy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Threats and people were followed. Um, 
Yeah, a lot of people left too. They lost a lot of people from the the refuge who just stopped working there. Yeah. I'm the archaeologist, moved away. And they don't have an archaeologist there now, which is a big problem for the tribe. They don't have a, somebody to partner with there anymore. Um, and that's, I mean, that's a huge issue for people working out in smaller communities for, um, federal agencies. Like they're, you can imagine like how vulnerable that can feel. Yeah. <laughs>